0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts 17, continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts with a message entitled Witnessing to the Uninformed and Misinformed. Stand with me once you're there, and we will read our text, verses 12 through 34 this morning. We have a lot to go over today. We will be praying for the victims in the shooting in Maine, as well as uh, the situation in Israel still, and also Out of Egypt Ministries. Patty, what an amazing ministry she has, uh, ministering to the LGBTQ community, as well as uh, gender dysphoric folks and stuff. All the younger people, she is doing an incredible job. If you're not familiar with her, I'd encourage you to go to uh, outofegyptministries.com, or I'm not, not sure if it's .org or .com, but... Just Google Google it, okay? <laughs> Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came up there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, and but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. God, as we consider those who are uninformed and misinformed, perhaps we were such a one as this, or maybe we are even this morning. Will you teach us this morning? Lord, reveal yourself to us. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your son Jesus, Lord, as we go through your word. Father, we want to lift up the victims of the shootings in Maine, Lord, those in the, that have lost family members. God, that you would be with them today, that you would bring about your people that you would draw them in, that they might be able to be some comfort and peace to these folks, Lord. We ask you to help those who don't have eternal hope this morning, that you would draw them to yourself. But, Father, only you can comfort somebody in a situation like this, so we ask you to be with them. God, we pray for those in Israel, both on both sides of the war there, Father, And and for peace and comfort of those who are mourning the lost. Father, for all of the tragic murders that have occurred and the slaughtering and such, Lord, that you would just be with the family members. And of course, Lord, we pray for peace in Israel. That you would bring this war to a rest. We ask you, Lord, that your son would be revealed through this situation. And we we just pray for all of those involved and all the leaders and all of that stuff, Father. And also, as we consider just the things that are going on in our uh relating to that with Iran and Russia and China and all of these things, Lord, may we as your followers not grow uh, nervous or be worried about these things. You're in control and you are working out your plan. So, Lord, help us to rest in you. We want to lift up Patty Hyatt, Lord, and Out of Egypt Ministries. We thank you so much for what you're doing with her. We ask you to be with her ministry, Lord. Be with Patty as she makes the move to New Jersey at the end of the year. Also, just be with her, Lord, as she begins to start this new direction in her ministry online with a podcast and such. Bring the people around that she needs to help her work out the technical details and provide for the place and the equipment and such, Lord. We just lift her to you. Father, we also want to pray for our church. Lord, as we, consider, as we uh, continue to embark on this journey that you're calling us to and starting a school next year, school of ministry, a lot of exciting things happening here, Lord. And, and Father, we, we want to pray for these four things. We want to pray for financial provisions, Lord, as we build out the overflowing cup area, Father, and, and putting in a sprinkler system and such that you provide for these things, Lord. We know that you're di- directing us, and so you, where you guide, you provide. We trust you in that. Father, we pray for um, just favor with all of those we're dealing with. Thank you for providing a great architect that we're going to be working with, and we ask you to just uh, go before us as we meet with contractors and city um, permitting people and all of that, Lord, that you would just give us favor with those folks. Lord, we want to lift up just uh, wisdom for our leadership here at Calvary as we are making decisions relating to the footprint of our building and uh, the programs, even... uh, uh, Elder Randy Lamaster, who's putting together the, the program for the education side. Lord, just give us wisdom. Lord, help us to make the right decisions, and we just thank you in advance for that. And fa- finally, Lord, we pray for unity in our body. Um, and we know we, we have unity, but, Lord, we ask you to preserve it because the enemy loves to divide. And so, Lord, as a family, we just ask you to keep us... Uh, Keep us on the same page. Keep us going in the same direction. As your word tells us in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless we're agreed? And so, Lord, let us be agreed uh, relating to your plan that you have for us. And so we just lift this time up to you now in your word. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, that was long. You guys stood the whole time? Whoa. it's amazing. Uh, You've heard it said before, but I'll say it again by the great prophet Mark Twain who said, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. Now, hey, that statement is truer today than it ever has been, folks. That is the truth. Uh, There is another category, though. There is the well-informed. The well-informed about what's happening in the world today. The well-informed about eternity, uh, and, and the well-informed happen to be the church. And if you look around the world today, and you see those who are standing and up for the truth, the Lord is using the church in a dark day to proclaim the truth. And you know it's so interesting to see these people who were, I would say, once considered liberal, who have who have moved over as a relation, not necessarily believers yet, but it's coming. God is drawing people through this reality because the sham is over, the curtains are pulled back, the world sees what's happening today in our day and age, and uh, God is moving. Is that not exciting? So cool to see. But, But here's the reality is that there are many people in the world that will choose to remain uninformed or misinformed. Uh, The uninformed just say, hey, I'm going to bury my head in the sand because I don't really want to know what's happening. It's too big for me. And I would say there are some in the church like that. There are others who are misinformed and they're holding on to things that they know are not true, but that's what they know, and so tradition holds them down. Uh, and, And so we have to be careful about that. I think it's entirely possible for us to be both at the same time uninformed and misinformed let me illustrate through my own life before I came to Christ I thought I was going to heaven you know why because I thought I was a good person mind you I had never gone to church or read the Bible how did I come up with this it just materialized I'm just like well I I think there's a heaven I'm going there because I'm a good guy I was both uninformed and misinformed at the same time I was uninformed that there was only one way to heaven And his name is Jesus Christ. Number two, I was misinformed about what it means to be a good person. Do you know the scripture tells us Jesus himself says there's no one that's good. Only God is good. That means that good by way of definition, biblical definition, is perfection. Only God is good because he's perfect. Man, I was totally lost. Listen, I'm so grateful that I didn't die in that state of my uninformed and misinformed uh, place in my life I'm so grateful God woke me up and he gave me an opportunity to come to Christ because I would have died and I would have gone to hell period I was uninformed and misinformed I think there every Christian can relate to that we all we all are in that category at some point in our life I don't care if you're raised in the church You can be uninformed and misinformed until you give your life to Jesus. You know, well, my parents are Christians, my grandparents were Christians, so therefore I'm Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. That makes you a family member of people who are Christians, but you're not a Christian because you were born in a family of people who call themselves Christians. You know that? Uninformed and misinformed. So, you know, we can relate to this. And and somebody who could totally relate to this as well is the Apostle Paul. Paul. Hey, you recall, he was uninformed and misinformed until he had the collision with Christ on the Damascus Road, and the Lord revealed himself. He said, Paul thought that he was doing the right things by stomping out the church, by persecuting Christians and killing them. He thought, oh, I'm doing the right thing. He was uninformed and misinformed, and I'll tell you why. Because Paul held on to a traditional view of who the Messiah would be and he was dead wrong about it. But God opened his eyes. And so he can, under, he can relate to this. And I think that's what makes him uh, so effective when he goes into places. Of course, the spirit of God upon him and you know, giving him the, the, the understanding and such to be able to communicate with people. But Paul was effective because he understood where people might be because he once was there. Sometimes as Christians, we forget we were unsaved at one point in our life. We forget that such a one was us, you know, when we were, uh, you know, adulterers and, and, and drunkards and all of these kinds of things. And, and it, we're, it's kind of healthy for us to remind ourselves of who we once were so that we could relate to people where they are in our culture today. And I think that that's something we, we need to uh, think about. But Paul could understand that, and he was very effective when he went to the places because he understood who he was and who God made him to be. He was now well-informed, going into the culture and teaching the uninformed and the misinformed. He does that in two cities in our text this morning, the city of Berea and the city of Athens. He begins by witnessing to the uninformed and misinformed in the city of Berea, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. If you were with us last week, you recall that Paul did the same protocol. He does it in every city almost. If there's a Jewish synagogue, that's the first place he goes. He went into Thessalonica last week. He went in and he shared the gospel for three Sabbath days. Uh, Some people got saved, but man, did he agitate some people to the point that they wanted to kill him, so they sent Paul and Silas and Timothy away by night, and they come to Berea. Berea is 40 miles southwest of Thessalonicus, built in the foothills of uh, the eastern slope of the Olympus Mountain range. It's a sought-after place in this culture because it's off the beaten path of the Ignatian Way, which was the road that, that led from east to west through Macedonia. The first thing that Paul does with his companions here is he goes into the Jewish synagogue as his protocol. Now, I'll say this: they're either gluttons for punishment or they really genuinely feel like they have a call of God upon their life, and I would suggest it's the latter. So Paul and Silas and Timothy go into the synagogue, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the Jews in Berea, it tells us, are more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word noble there could be translated fair-minded. Fair-minded. They were fair-minded people. In other words, they were open-minded as it related to the teachings of the scripture. So uh, when, when Paul came in, they were open-minded about what he had to say, but they were not going to be deceived. Why? Because they used the word of God as the filter to what was being said. Um, they weren't closed-minded though, and that's important to note. The people of Berea didn't think they had it all figured out. Like they understood that there probably are some things in scripture that I don't have 100% correct, so let me hear what you have to say and then I'll measure it against the scripture to see if I need to change. You ever read the Bible like that? Listen, I promise you, if Christians read the Bible like that, we may not have as many denominations as we have. Right, but what happens to us is we hold on to various traditional teachings That we've heard people say, and it sounded good to us, so we we adopt as doctrine, and we've never studied it for ourselves. That is tragic. That is tragic. You and I are called to be students of the word of God. We're called to be lifelong learners of the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't ever stop. Like, you can invest your entire life in the Bible, and you'll never know enough, and it will constantly change you. You know and and so the term "Hey, be a Berean," the idea is to be a constant learner and to be open minded when you come to the scriptures. Now we're not talking about foundational open mindedness in terms of uh, let's be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. that's not what we're talking about. you know there is only one way to heaven. you know the foundational truth of Christianity is never going to change. I don't care how many times you read it or whatever. it's never going to change uh, the The red letter. Throughout the, the, one, the one vein throughout Scripture is that the world needs Jesus, period. And he came to die and raise again from the dead so people could be saved. He is the only way to heaven. That will never change. But sometimes we receive things in that we've heard that sound good to us, and we can't back them up because we've never studied them. And I'm suggesting to you this morning that we should make sure that what we believe is from Scripture and not just what sounded good. How many of you have ever been led astray by what sounded good? Listen, your emotions lead you astray. Oh man, that sounds so good. The next thing you know, your life's a train wreck. You know? You're like, oh man, but it sounded good. Uh, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't live your life like that. Don't live by what sounds good. We need to be as the Bereans. They were eager to hear the word. They wanted to hear what Paul had to say. Come to the conversation with eagerness. I want to learn. Teach me something. Tell me something. Hey, I'm a student just like you. I love having conversations with people. Hey, let's learn together. Uh, If you're prideful, you'll never learn. That's why we're called to be teachable people. Come with eagerness to the conversation. However, we come with the idea that we need to examine the, scripture. The, the word examine here means to try to learn the nature or truth of something by process of careful study, evaluation, and judgment. To examine carefully, to investigate, to study thoroughly. I thought I was done with that when I graduated from uh, you know, high school or college. Nope. Not in Christianity, you're not. You're called to be a lifelong student. We're we're called to examine what's being said. I don't care who's saying it, if it's me or any other pulpit you listen to or the YouTuber that you follow or whoever it is, you know, you hear what they have to say, but you examine it through the word of God. I've been incredibly stirred by uh, pastors and pulpits and and YouTubers and such, uh, you know, only to find out what they said wasn't biblical because I looked in the Bible. Be careful about what you just blindly receive. You know, we need to be Bereans in that way and examine what's being said through uh the scriptures. Again, I'll say it again. Be careful about stuff that sounds good to you. Make sure it aligns with the scripture. These folks searched the scriptures, and you know what it tells us? Therefore, many believed. They were uninformed or misinformed, one or the other, or both, when the gospel came to the to the to the Berea. They searched the scriptures and they found out, whoa, Paul has something to say that is true and I receive it and thus many got saved, it says. But you know what it also says? Some didn't. Some didn't. Did they not do the same thing? Did they not read the Bible? Probably they searched the scriptures, but you know what happened? Many of them held on to the the traditional view of who Messiah was And you know what? That would keep them from the revelation that God was giving them. I was just listening to a conversation that Ben Shapiro was having, who is Jewish, and uh, holds to the traditional understanding of who Messiah will be, and with a guy named, apologist named William Lane Craig. And uh, William Lane Craig was laying out the reason why Jesus was Messiah. Did a phenomenal job. Best 12 minutes you'll spend uh, today is listening to that interview between the little snippet where he's talking about Jesus, William Lane Craig and Ben Shapiro. But, but, he, but he lays out this whole thing about why Jesus is Messiah, that the scripture indicates that, number one, because Jesus is the son of God, which is to say God the son in Judaism, meaning God is in human flesh. He is, uh, you know, the, the one that came, God came down. He is Emmanuel, Isaiah 9.6, the whole bit there. You know, and not only that, but also, he is also the son of man, which is, again, a Jewish term coming from the prophetic word of Daniel. And so that is also an indication that Jesus is Messiah. He called himself the son of man and the son of God, both. That if that isn't enough, he goes on to put the the the, really the nail in the coffin, which is by the way he rose again from the dead. Uh, I don't know that anybody that can compete with that, folks. He rose again from the dead, and so he does a wonderful job of laying out why Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And here's Ben Shapiro's reply, and I quote: "The Messiah." And Judaism has always been a political figure who is destined to do certain things. Restoring the kingdom of Israel. Maintaining control of that kingdom. Bringing more Jews back to Israel. All these things are considered political things that the Messiah does. But the idea that Messiah as the embodiment of God is something that, listen, is foreign to Jewish religious philosophy. Going all the way back to the beginning. What did he just do? I'm holding on to the traditional view of Judaism and I will not let it go. I don't care what you say. I am uninformed and misinformed related to the scriptures concerning Messiah and I'm not bending on that. And you know what? It's sad. But that's what will lead people to hell. It's because they're unwilling to hear the truth. And God has put John MacArthur and a gazillion other people in Ben Shapiro's place, and he's continued to share the gospel with them, you know, about who Jesus is. But the problem is that, um, like, like even we can do, is if we hold on to a traditional view and we're not open to the Holy Spirit speaking to us, then we'll miss it. You know, whenever someone comes to me and says, hey, I want, I want to talk to you about this particular subject or whatever, whether it's gifts of the Spirit or whatever it might be, and, uh, you know, I have my own personal, you know, I have a—I have a position on all of this stuff. I've studied these things. I, I have a position on it. However, when I have a conversation, this is not an open license to come to attack your pastor, by the way. I'm just being real with you. When I have a conversation with somebody like that, I genuinely try to come to the conversation objectively and just say, well, let's talk about the facts. What does the Bible say? Let's look at the scripture. And I will is As genuinely as honestly as I can, I will try not to come with preconceived ideas about what I believe, although I've studied these things and i and I do have a position on them. I try to come to the conversation saying, "Lord, if I'm wrong, let me know because I don't want to lead people astray and uh you know, there have been a few things, the Lord's like, "No, that's wrong, you need to change that over the years and uh and so I'm just telling you that we have to be careful about these things, and I would really encourage you to study the word based on what you believe, not just, just regurgitating information that you've heard from somebody else, but do your due diligence. And you know what it does? It makes you stronger, and it gives you the capacity to be able to give to give a reason for the hope that lies within you relating to these things. So Ben Shapiro will be praying for him, that God would use him. But But to this day, he holds to the traditional view that, Messiah will be a political figure. Do you know who the, really the political um, figure that Judaism is calling the Messiah, you know who he really is? The Antichrist. That's really who he is. He's the Antichrist. He will be the political figure that will rise up in the tribulation period. He will bring peace to Israel. He will do all these wonderful things and he will look like the Messiah to Israel and then halfway through the tribulation period, he will make his way into the temple and he'll say, I'm God. And the scales will fall from the Jews' eyes and they'll go, oh my goodness, what did we do? And when Jesus shows up at the second coming, the Jews are going to look at him and say, as, he, as prophesied, I think it's in Zechariah where he says, where did you get those wounds? And he said, in the house of my friends. That's where I got these wounds. The Jews crucified the Messiah. But he was crucified really for the sin of the world, ultimately. They reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their view. But really who they're looking for is the Antichrist. How sad is that? It tells us that many believed, but some didn't. And that happens when you have conversations with people about the Lord. It says many, a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as some men. So God was at work in the midst of this conversation. But guess what? Like anything, when God does something wonderful, coming right behind him is the enemy to try and deconstruct what God has done. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd's. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by, to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after, open, after receiving a command from for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So the jealousy of the Jews is still in their hearts in Thessalonica. Like, they're not over it. They're, they're gonna, they want to kill Paul at this point because why? because of what he said in the Jewish synagogue that took the limelight off of the Jewish religious leaders and put it on Jesus. And they didn't like it. And so they want to kill him. So they come to Thessalonica. They stir up those who are not believers at this point in time. And they are going to do the same thing. So the brothers who came to Christ, they sent Paul off by way of the Aegean Sea. You can see this map that is up there for you. Uh, They they sent him just... you know, on the north side of the Sea down to the southern tip of Ki, where, where he would go to Athens. When he, when he got to Athens, the guys that escorted him there, he sent them back to Berea and he said, hey, go tell Timothy and Silas to come. They apparently had stayed in Berea and we don't know why, probably to be, uh, maybe it's because he, Paul had to get out of town so quickly that uh, he wanted, he, he left them there, or it was because Silas and Timothy needed to disciple this church that had just been birthed in Berea. Uh, probably maybe some of all of that. Paul is now witness successfully to the uninformed and misinformed of Berea. Now he's going to do the same in Athens. Look at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I remember the first time I ever went to India and uh, I, I got in at nighttime, so I wasn't really paying attention to stuff. The next morning, the guy that picked me up, he's Hindu. And so he was driving me through the southern part of India, southern, southern, southern central part of India in a, a city called Bangalore. And I was traveling outside of that city to these various different factories for my job and such. And so we were going through all these different places, and I noticed all these Hindu temples everywhere. And on top of these temples were these sculptures of all these different gods, and, and I was just like, man, what is all that about? I had nothing, I had no idea. I was a believer at the time, but I had no idea what uh, Hindus believe. So I started asking the guy that has the dot on his head that's sitting next to me in my car, uh, who's a friend of mine, actually, and I said, so what is all this all about? Tell me about it. And, uh, you know, it's sad that he was born a Hindu, but he had no idea what he believed, but he believed it. You ever been there? Oh, I just believe it. Well, what do you believe it? Why do you believe it? Well, I just do. That's a terrible reason to believe something, because you just do. Like, you're ba- I, this is what I told the guy. Dude, you're basing eternity on the idea that it just sounds good to you? Or because your parents, believe this, you're basing your entire eternity on this? I ruffled his feathers like crazy on purpose. You know what? Hey, think about it, man. Look at all these gods. You know, it's hard to really put a number on how many gods the Hindus believe, uh, they, they worship. But do you know, it's estimated up to like 33 million gods is that crazy 33 million dude i can't even do good with one i 33 million forget it i mean i'm a i'm a train wreck at that point but but i remember when i was there and then i started to see idolatry everywhere in um in in every place i went whether it's hotels or offices or convenience stores or whatever they have all these idols everywhere and you know what all of a sudden i just started getting angry like i was like dude i'm provoked in my spirit man these guys, are being, these guys are being so upfront with their false gods, I'm gonna be up front with the gospel. And so I started sharing the one and true living God with these people everywhere I went. And, and, and it was amazing to see what God did, but I was provoked in my spirit just like Paul was. He was agitated, he was irritated. Not with the people, not with the people. He was agitated and irritated. He was provoked within his spirit because of the lostness of the people. To understand they've been deceived the wool had been pulled over their eyes they could not see the truth and behind every one of those dead and dumb idols was some demonic presence that was deceiving these people when Patty Hite was talking about the deception of the young people in our culture man they're deceived these kids are being ripped off by the enemy if that doesn't agitate you what's wrong with you like, look around. These kids have no idea. You have conversations with these kids, and, and I've had conversations with a kid that's that's um, transferring. You know, he's whatever. What do you call it? He's transitioning from a, a boy to a girl. And I just had a, a genuine conversation with him. I'm like, well, why? What are you thinking? He has no clue. He has no clue. It agitates me when I look at the culture that we live in and you see the things going on with the deception that's happening. Do you know that it's because of idolatry? Do you understand that? Like it, earlier this year, the Lord showed me really ultimately what's happening in our country is exactly what's happened in the Old Testament through Israel and through every other culture. It's idolatry is the problem. It's idolatry. And behind every idol is the demonic force. That's why Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a flesh and blood issue. It's not a human issue. It's a spiritual issue that is, there, there's a whole world happening around us in a different realm. And if you can't see that today, you're blinded. The, the veil has been pulled back, folks. The demonic is moving forward. And, you know, the three idols that are prominent in the Old Testament are prominent in our culture, Baal. Prominent in our culture, being worshipped in our culture, not by a statue, but it's happening. You know, Ishtar, which is the um the, the Mesopotamian uh, god, which is really um Asheroth, known in the Bible. That is the, listen, that is the the god of sexual paralysis. It's also um known as um uh the, the Greek goddess. Um it, I can't remember, but anyway. The reality of it is, is Ishtar, um, Asheroth, the same God, the God of sexuality. Do you know ultimately that boils down to gender dysphoria? That is happening in our culture. Not only that, but what about Molech and the sacrifice of children through abortions? The same God that's being worshiped. We just don't have the, 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 the statues in our culture today. If that doesn't provoke your spirit, man, wake up. Look around the culture. This stuff is here. That's what Paul saw when he walked into Athens and he saw the lostness of these people. And it it urged him and it agitated him to the point that I don't even think he waited for Timothy and, and Silas to get there. He's like, dude, I got to do something about this now. And I will tell you, church, it's exactly the attitude we need to have. We need to do something about this now. And ultimately, you know, we can't wrestle people into Christ, you know, but but we do need to stand and tell the truth and not sit back and say nothing about this stuff. Paul went into the Jewish synagogue and he shared the gospel with people. And you know what, some people probably believe, some people didn't, but he didn't stop there. That's what's interesting about this. He didn't stop within the four walls of the synagogue. He said, dude, we got to take this message to the street because he believed that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so he took the gospel to the marketplace in Athens, which is probably a little uncomfortable, I'm guessing, I'm guessing he wasn't saying, well, I guess I'm just called to this, so, you know, I'm not fearful at all about this. Hey, he was a human being, folks. We can't read about his struggles relating to sharing the gospel, but he had the same ones you do, trying to overcome those things. But understand, when you know you're called to something, you step into it. And it doesn't mean that you don't have any fear, but you overcome that fear because uh, the call is bigger than the fear. So he went into the marketplace, and it tells us that, he, be, he began to converse with the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the, really the main sort of thinkers of that culture. They're really those two groups. The Epicureans were hedonists in that culture. All they cared about was pleasure and happiness. Uh, hello, America, hedonistic. It's all about the pursuit of what? Happiness. And What is happiness? Whatever makes me feel good. So therefore, it's pleasure, you see, we're a hedonistic culture, and uh, that's playing its way out. The hedonists, they believed in no divine intervention in your life as you were living, but they also believed in no divine judgment after you were dead, so they just lived however they want because this, the, this is all there is. So, hey, have fun. Do what you want. The Stoics, on the other hand, um, they were conservative in the way that they lived. Uh, they were uh, pantheistic in, in the sense that they believed God was everywhere. So they were like modern, they were ancient New Agers, really. Oh, God is everywhere. He's in nature and all of these sorts of things, and we can just, we can just embrace the, the creation, and that's God, and you're God, and we're all God, you know, kind of thing. They did also, they did not believe in an eternity afterlife. And so this is all for them, too. But they lived by really four, vi- four virtues, the, um, these guys did. They lived by by the virtues of uh, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. And temperance was divided into three categories, self-control, discipline, and modesty. So they were, they would kind of, no doubt they would elevate themselves in their culture looking at the Epicureans going... Dude, those guys, are all they care about is happiness and stuff. Look how good we are. Look how virtuous we are. Look how self-controlled we are. You know what that would breed in somebody? Pride. That would breed a, a pride in the heart of a man thinking they're better than the culture that they live in. And so it was these people that Paul began to converse with. The word converse there, literally it means to dispute or debate. They were they were arguing with Paul about what he said. And some even said, hey, Paul was a babbler. Literally, it means a seed picker. It's a derogatory term that's used to describe somebody who picks up scraps of intellectual thoughts and passes them on. He was a, what would be called a pseudo-intellectual. Um, he was somebody who was just taking on thoughts from somebody else and passing them on like a lot of Christians do. Relating to the things that they believe. Don't be like that. They, they were putting Paul in the category like, he's just a babbler. He's just a seed picker. He's a guy that has taken thoughts from somebody else and he just passed them on. He, has, he can't even make sense of this stuff because it made no sense to them, the things that he would say to them. Others said that he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities, which because he would preach he, he preached about Jesus Christ and him crucified about the resurrection of Jesus which was a new thing for these people they had never heard anything like that and you know because they loved hearing new things that was what they spent their life on is what's the new next thing what's the new next teaching? Uh, Where's the new philosophy that we can apply to our lives? And so when Paul came up with this new philosophy that they had never heard before, he got an invitation to go to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill in Latin, and it was the place where the intellectuals would go. And he got an incredible opportunity in this place to share the gospel. Matthew 18, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're delivered before kings and such. Did Paul have time to prep his sermon for this? No, he did not. But he was prepared. He was prepared. And you know what? Here's the reality. We have one message, and it's real simple. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. He came and died for you and rose again from the dead for you. All you have to do is put your faith in him, period. That's it. It's simple. And, of course, there's a lot of other things that are intertwined with that that we can grow the rest of our life in. But when it comes down to it, if you want to boil down the message that you're called to preach in this culture, it is that. That is the message. There is no other message. You know, all the secondary matters that that we discuss as believers and stuff, it's good to do that. And I think, you know, again, it makes us us really think about what we believe and why we believe it and such. But at the end of the day, uh, the only message that will change your life eternally is the gospel. It's the only thing that can uh, that can bring you from uh, deadness to life. It's the only thing that can cause you to be born again to a living hope. It is that message. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not, not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. That's why I preach it. And you know, as intellectual as Paul was, it's incredible how he presents God to these people who know nothing about him. They have no clue about the God that Paul is going to preach. And so he does an amazing job. The message that he brings to the Areopagus is uh, an incredible message. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along And observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar, the inscription to the unknown god. What, therefore, you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Again, Athens was a place full of gods. They estimate about thirty thousand gods. uh, You know uh, that that they had they had temples and statues and all of these different things towards all of these gods in Athens. And when Paul saw that, that's why he got so provoked, because he was like, dude, these people are so lost. You know, they they embraced uh, uh, Greek pantheonism, which is, you know, the the whole, the pantheon, which is all the mythological gods, Zeus and, uh, you know, Poseidon and all of those different gods. They would embrace those gods and such. But when Paul was walking through the city of Athens somewhere, he came across an inscription of a statue that they had there that said to the unknown God and it was like he just grabbed it. He grabbed something out of culture and now he's gonna use it to communicate the gospel to these people. Super important that we understand when, we, when, we're, when we're evangelizing with people, we don't just come to them with a message that's totally out of the blue that they cannot relate to, but we utilize the world that they live in as a, as sort of a way to describe who God is to them, and so Paul's doing this he's like, "Oh, let me tell you about this unknown God that you you guys are worshiping It's interesting how this even came about you know this unknown god in six b c the uh, there was a plague that came through Athens and when people believe in the mythological gods and such, they would when anything bad happened, they would say what? Oh, no, we've offended the gods, right? I mean, you've seen you know, Gladiator and stuff like that. We've offended the gods, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so that, that was what they thought. Isn't it a terrible way to live your life when you think that you've offended the gods and you're worried about your God taking you behind the woodshed and uh, punishing you because you messed up? Aren't you glad you don't serve a God like that? Our God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And of course, he's a just God and he's a holy God, but, but man, he doesn't take us behind the woodshed and punish us because we messed up. Hey, he want, he'll, he'll definitely discipline those whom he loves. But these guys had to have lived in fear their entire lives of the gods that they worship in fear of them coming down on them. They were manipulative gods. You know why? Because they were demonic. And what does Satan want from from mankind. He wants us to worship him. He wants to get the worship that deserves God. That's what got him cast out of heaven. I will become like the most high God, right? He storms the throne. Bye. You know, see you later. And he was cast down. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The moment he approached the throne, boom, gone. Worshippers worship. The enemy knows this. And so he utilizes idolatry as a way to get the thing that he wants in the first place, which is worship. And we're worshipers, and we're gonna worship, and he's gonna figure out a way to get worship from you some way, shape, or form. He'll use anything. He didn't have to be the front side of it. He's the back side of it. He didn't care about that. So in other words, I'll put something in front of you that will become your idol, therefore you're worshiping me. That's what he does. That's how he works. That's why it's so deceptive. You know, it can be anything. It could be your your child. It could be your job. It could be your material possessions. It could be anything. It could be your house. You know, We, we think like we don't live in a land of idol, idols. Oh, dude, we have idols everywhere. Everywhere. We just don't recognize them as this. Paul recognizing this. Anyway, back to what I was saying. 6 BC there was a plague in Athens and these people thought that they had offended the gods. So they brought in a, a consultant. I don't know where you get a consultant back in 6 BC. Like, hey, I need a spiritual consultant about how we've offended the gods. But they found one. Uh, his name was Epimenides, and he was from Crete. So they brought him in, and uh, they ran through this thing, this whole ritual. You can read about it online. It's pretty interesting. They, they brought some sacrifices in, and they put them up on Mars Hill. And the ones that laid down, they sacrificed the ones that stood up or whatever. They knew that they had offended a God. Here's the, here's the crazy thing is, he didn't know which one. Like you bring a consultant in and you're paying the guy and he doesn't know what God you offended. So they go, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a statue to the unknown God and sacrifice to that one. And that should cover us. I think you guys will be good now. I'll, I'll take my check. Thanks. See you later. You know, man, that was the easiest consultant job that guy ever had. Man. So that's exactly where this came from. But here's the crazy thing is. In 6 BC, God goes, oh, I'm gonna use that. God's like, I'm, I'm gonna allow this to happen because the apostle Paul is gonna come some 50 years later and he's gonna see that inscription on that thing and I'm gonna use that to present the gospel to people who are uninformed and misinformed about who I am. And that's exactly what he does. Paul starts his message by saying, let me tell you about the unknown God. And now he's going to break his message out into three components, really. He's gonna describe this unknown God to these people. And so he begins with the nature of God in verses 24 through 29. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul begins to proclaim the creator of all things. He said, Listen, there is one God over all, and he's created everything. He is the one and true living God, he is Yahweh the creator. Everything in the world was created by him. That's why he's called Lord, because he's over all things. He created a man named Adam. And through Adam, God created the rest of every person who will ever live. He, through procreation, he, he populated the earth. Not only this, but then God determined each and every individual. That would live in each and every age or time and also in every place, every dwelling place. God put boundaries upon those and where you would live. You ever wonder, like, you ever thought about that? Like, why would God choose to create me in this day and in this place? Like, why wasn't I born in Honduras or Indonesia or, you know, some third world country, Haiti or something like that? Why did God put me here and why did God put them there? And why did he do it in this time frame? Why wasn't I born in, you know, the second century? Or why wasn't I born, uh, you know, in, in, in B.C. times? Why am I born now? And why here? You want to know why? It's so that you could seek God and know him. That's why, that's what he said. It's so that you could seek me and know me. Like God put you where you are in the time and space and place so that you would be positioned to know him. That's what he did. Like, in other words, and, and this is a tough concept to grab because some of us are, are, have grown up in maybe horrible situations, like, you know, tragic situations, abusive situations, or whatever. But here's the reality is God put us where he put us to reach us. Does that make sense? See, like, he put us exactly where, where we were and the time that we are in the place that we are so that we would know him so that we could seek him. In other words, if he would have put you some other time, some other place, perhaps you wouldn't know him at all. And so when we think of it like that, we think like, oh man, Lord, thank you. No matter what background I come from, Lord, thank you that you put me in that place, that you put me in that time frame, in that dwelling, that I could come to know you. Because ultimately, and I say this lightly, and not, not to lighten, what's happened in people's lives but it's not about this life it's about the next one the next one is the one that matters but you can't get to the next one until you do the right thing in this one and so God puts us where God in other words positioned you in the right place that you might know him that's a gracious God that's a merciful God that's a loving God I don't care what background you come from that is, that is God's hand in your life. And Paul is saying that's what he's done for you. He's put you in that place. He goes on to say, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, where's that in the Bible? Think like Paul must be quoting some, you know, some, some Isaiah or some, something. I mean, where would that come? No, he's quoting the poet Epimenides. The statesman who established uh, Athens as the political and cultural center that it is. He's quoting a poet? Yeah, he's using the culture. He's using the things that the culture understands to reveal who God is to them. In him, in who? In the creator, in Yahweh, God. In him, we live and move and have our being. He's utilizing a saying of the day, have preached the gospel. This is genius. Again, I, I don't say that it's all Paul, but he's playing a role in this, folks. He's playing a role in this. He's perceptive of the culture that he lives in, and he's trying to reach people for Jesus. And so he's utilizing, empowered by the Holy Spirit, yes, but utilizing the culture to speak to the culture about Jesus. Not only that, but he says, man, we're his offspring, meaning, meaning we're from God. And by the way, God's not formed with hands. We don't form and fashion our God like you do. Our God is, is eternal, past, eternal, future. He doesn't have an end or a beginning, or a beginning and an end, if you want to look at it that way. And he's just saying, this is the God that I present to you. Now, this is, this is literally... Uh, just offensive to this culture what he's saying but what he doesn't do is attack what they believe notice that he's not saying you oh, you guys got it all wrong here how are you guys worshiping these things that are being fashioned and formed by hands they're dumb idols they're dead although he'll tell the Corinthians that but he doesn't do that here And he understands that he's aware of where he's at and and, and how to present the gospel. And I think that sometimes we just, we're just like a wrecking ball in the culture and we go in and we just go, well, you're doing it wrong. You should believe in Jesus. What are you, stupid? You can't understand these things? And we purposely offend people. And then we say, but let me tell you about Jesus. Yeah, no thanks, I'm good. I don't wanna hear about that Jesus. All I'm saying is, is, Consider what Paul is doing here in this culture and then transition it into your life and how you share the gospel. This is incredible. And we can learn a lot about how to minister to to the uninformed and the misinformed when it comes to the gospel in this culture. Paul says, man, this is the God that I want to talk to you about, the unknown God that you're worshiping, and here's who he really is. He's the creator of everything. He doesn't need a house. You can't build him a house. He's good. You you can't fashion him with hands. He's not a statue. But you can worship him because you're his offspring. He's where your life comes from is what he says here. Next, he goes on and he gives an imitation. Look, the time, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul is making it clear that Jesus Christ is the judge, that God appointed Jesus to come to this world, to die on a cross, to rise again from the dead, but one day He's coming back as a judge. That's what he's saying here. Uh, these guys didn't believe in eternal judgment. They didn't believe in eternal. They didn't believe in life after death. But yet, even though they don't believe it, he still said it. He still said these things. He still uh, brings the full gospel truth to these people, even though they're they're not in the same place. God has been trying to reveal Himself to man since the beginning. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through two. Long ago in many times in any ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. In other words, uh, God has been speaking to man in various different times, in various different ways, through prophets, through all these different people, but in these last days, which days are those? The ones we're living in, the last days, Wait, the last days were when Paul was preaching? Yeah, that's when the last days started, when Jesus came. Those are the last days. We're in the last days. That's why people, you know, when you think about, well, how much more time do we have? Dude, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. I don't think we have a ton of time left considering that. But in the last days, God will reveal himself through his son, and that's exactly what he's done. The gospel has gone forward. God has revealed himself. I'm a gracious and compassionate God that understands where you are, that you are destitute without me. You can do nothing apart from me. You need to be born again to a living hope. So I sent a sacrifice so that you could do that. And all you have to do is believe by faith in him. Turn away to repent is what Paul says. That's not a dirty word, guys, to repent. It's to call somebody out of the lifestyle that they're living into a newness of life. And that's really the expectation that God has for us in terms of, um, you know, when we come to Christ, we're called to walk in newness of life. Literally, we've burned the barn down and we've turned away and we're not looking backward, we're going forward. It doesn't mean you're not going to stumble along the way or anything like that. Yeah, you're going to mess up. But what? You repent and move forward. Your salvation isn't based on that. And in fact, truth be told, even when you come to Christ, repentance, that idea, your salvation's not really based on that, but what you're doing is turning your your entire life to Jesus and putting everything in his basket. And you're saying, Lord, I put my whole life in your basket, and I believe that you came and died for me. And that ultimately then leads to a life of repentance where you're constantly turning back to Jesus, turning back to Jesus, turning back to Jesus. In other words, you don't wait to clean your life up to come to Christ. You come to Christ and then he cleans your life up. That's the way it works. Paul says this is the way that you come to salvation. And notice he then says that God gave us assurance. He gave us the assurance that Jesus is everything that he said he was, by way of the resurrection. Listen, the resurrection is the linchpin in the gospel. If the resurrection doesn't happen, all of this is pointless. If it did not happen, then Christianity is a sham. And you shouldn't believe it. But it did happen. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 and 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Wow. He's just saying... That there is no point to all of this if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. But he did. So there is a point to it. Look at their response in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you, about this, uh, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damarius and others with them. So some mocked the resurrection. Again, they they didn't believe in it. Some said, hey, tell me more later. And a lot of guys believe, uh, you know, the way that they're saying this is kind of a, hey, just push him off, you know, kind of thing. They're not really sincere about, hey, tell me more later. Who knows? Uh, But yet it tells us other people joined him. And in fact, one of the guys that joins Paul is Dionysius the Areopagite. meaning this guy was a judge on Mars Hill. Like he was one of the people who would judge what was being said. He was a thinker of the day and such, and he came to Christ. Paul was reaching these thinkers of their culture. And he reached a whole bunch of other people. He didn't reach everybody, but he did reach some people. It's amazing to see who God can reach. Listen, you and I are going to encounter people in life that are uninformed and misinformed. You're you're constantly encountering these people. The question is, how do you witness to them? There's six things that we can learn from what we just went over today that will help you in the way that Paul was reaching the people of Berea and the people of Athens. Here they are very quickly. Number one, be sensitive to the Spirit. Hello. It has to be driven by the Spirit of God. Listen to the Spirit of God. He will tell you, what to say. Number two, don't be passive in your evangelistic efforts. In other words, put yourself in places where you can evangelize. If you surround yourself in a little Christian bubble, who are you going to share the gospel with? Like, there should be people in your life that you can share the gospel with. And most of us, as I said before, we're, the way we're going to do that is by building relationships. So put yourself in those positions that you can be used by God to share the gospel with people who are lost. I didn't say go out and make friends with the world. I just said put yourself in positions where God can use you. Number three, know something about those who you're talking about and adapt your presentation of the gospel accordingly. Like when you're talking to people, people have thoughts, they have backgrounds, they have all kinds of stuff that they're bringing into the conversation. So be quick to listen, slow to speak. You know, hear people, where they're coming from, and then use the scripture to kind of counterbalance the conversation. Be willing to hear what, where a person is coming from rather than just tell them where they need to be because that's the wrong way to share the gospel. Oh, no, 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 no. You need to do this, 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 and this. Yeah, but no, 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 no. And I've seen it happen that way and I've probably done it that way. Don't do it that way. Try to find some common ground with the person you're talking to and then bridge the conversation to the truth about God and the claims of Jesus Christ. In other words, get to know somebody we can use sports. We can use current events. We can use all of these things to, 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 to start a conversation that can then lead to a spiritual conversation. So it's just practical things. Just, you know, build a relationship with somebody. Number five, this is super important. Don't directly attack the religion of another person. Well, hold on. They're wrong. Yeah. I know, but do you want to you show them that because if you, if you directly attack them, they're gonna shut off to you and you're never gonna have a conversation with them, period. You know, be led by the Spirit, but I'm just saying that, you know, I've done this before where you immediately go in and go, oh, no, 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 you're totally wrong with that. No, no, let me show you the truth. And dude, I lost the guy, you're totally wrong. I lost the person completely, you're totally wrong. Here's what I'll tell you is if you share the gospel, they'll see it. They'll see the falsehoods of their beliefs. There's only one religion who puts Jesus in the proper place and it's Christianity and when you share the true gospel with people, it causes the, all of the rest of the religions to sort of evaluate, well, is this, because everybody has a belief about Jesus that he's just a good man. Every religion has a belief that Jesus was a good teacher but only Christianity believes that he was the savior of the world and then he rose again from the dead. You don't have to do... You, you're going to offend people by just sticking to the gospel, guys. So just stick to that. You don't have to directly attack somebody. Number number six, be faithful with the gospel message and don't argue with people about their beliefs in salvation. Listen, if it was if salvation and all of this was dependent on you, then I'd say have at it. Just let it loose. Just rip on people. But it's not... It's not based on you. It's not based on your ability to communicate with people. It's not based on any of that. Here's the crazy thing is we get to do this. God doesn't need us. Paul said it. He's needless. He doesn't need any of us. He could do this by himself. He saved me in the middle of my bedroom by myself. He doesn't need us. We get to do this. He's allowed us the privilege to be able to come to somebody and introduce him to them. That is an incredible privilege. I don't have to argue with anybody about that. I just introduce them to Jesus and I let him do it over. He takes it over and he's already prepared the conversation. These six things I think will help you tremendously when you're when you're uh, witnessing to people who are uninformed and misinformed or all of the above. We are the well-informed folks. If God, if we're not gonna do our job, then God will just send somebody else or something else. He'll, angelic host, he'll do, Something to reach people. But I say that we, as the well-informed, go into a culture that's a train wreck of misinformation and um, uninformed people who don't want to hear it because, you know, they're just scared of what's happening. And we go in and we tell people about the Lord because time is ticking. And, you know, I don't know how long we have, but like I said, it's been the last days for 2,000 years. I don't know how much more God's going to allow this to go on. But I want to do my job. And when I go home, I want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.